Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. John said, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. And his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now, look, I am alive forevermore. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Or it may be hell if you have a translation that you are referencing. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now we read that and I I think the thing that would jump out to me and I would say probably is jumping out to some of you is there doesn't look like there's a lot of meat on those bones in that passage. But actually, there is quite a bit there for us, which is the reason I'm reluctant just to skim over it to get farther down in the book of Revelation. But what this passage is about is Jesus reveals things about himself to John, and John reveals those things to the churches. And these descriptions of, of these ways that Jesus appeared to him are all significant. And I don't know that we in our culture understand the significance of all the details, but we feel like the churches in that culture understood more about the significance of those details than we readily do without digging a little deeper in study. But for instance, the the sword that comes out of his mouth, uh, I think most of us would understand that has to do with the power with which Jesus Christ speaks the truth. And uh, we also have to remind, uh, remind ourselves that uh, it's, it's said in Scripture that when uh, Jesus comes back, he will destroy the Antichrist with the uh, uh, spirit of his mouth and the brightness of his coming. So there's power in the speech of Jesus. And all of these other uh, Symbols as well, the way he is symbolized with the golden sash, just overall speaks of how God had either been pictured in the Old Testament with 
with the, uh, the hair and, and, the, and the sash, or how royalty uh, had been pictured. And Isaiah caught a vision of God, and Ezekiel caught a vision of God. And if you check those visions, you'll find that some of the things going along with, with this, they, they mesh together, that those who have caught a vision of God have similar descriptions of him in all of his majesty, insomuch that John the Baptist said, I, I fell down like a dead man when I saw that. Now, when we read that, we don't get the impact that, that John the Revelator had when he saw this, but it must have been uh, amazingly powerful for him to behold this and, and then to write, this is what I saw, this is who I saw, this is how I saw him. And the declaration that Jesus makes to him saying, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last, and I am the living one. And of course in our sermon last week, we remember that uh, the declaration of being the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, makes Jesus declaring himself to be God, equal with God the Father. And most people read that and understand the equality of Jesus with God the Father, but there is one cultic group in particular that I will mention that does some real uh, strange acrobats to get around the implication of Jesus being deity, and that is the Jehovah's Witnesses. I don't know how many of you are associated with Jehovah's Witnesses. If you have any friends, if you have any family that are associated with them, uh, they are not a Christian group. They are a cult. They are false uh, uh, they are a false religion, a fake religion. And one of the things about cults that defines them as cults is uh, consistently cults deny the deity of Jesus Christ. There are other things that go along with cults as well, but that's one of the key things. They also fail to recognize the Bible as complete and the entire uh, inspired Word of God. They've always got some additional scriptures to add to that to make up the religion. But the key thing here is Jesus Christ is Lord. So if you read... The uh, New World Translation of the Holy Scriptures, which is the Jehovah's Witnesses version of the Bible, which incidentally was created uh, with a handful of pseudo-scholars. The, 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 the foremost skilled scholar on the entire team that produced that had only two years of Greek. Now, can you imagine trying to translate a Bible with that limited education? Yet we have teams of the finest scholars in the world that bring to us the translations we have today. And they had a two-year dropout that led the team to translate the New World Translation of the Holy Scriptures. So you can see the quality of, of their version of the Bible. In the Jehovah's Witnesses Bible, you can go to John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now that ought to establish the deity of Jesus Christ very clearly, hadn't it? I don't think you would argue with that. But in order to show you the manipulation of the Jehovah's Witnesses, they, they translate it this way. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. And they say it's a God because Jesus is never referred to as uh, the God with the uh, specific article T-H-E, the God. So if it's not, if it's missing, then it must be he's just a God, a little God, but he's not the God. That's what they build their case on. He's not the God. Of course, they completely ignore 
the fact that Thomas, whenever he asked Jesus to show me your, your hands and, and let me uh, thrust my hand into your side, I won't believe until I see that, that Thomas, and I, I, I'm not a Greek scholar by any means, so those of you who are, please excuse me for bungling my Greek. But Thomas declared to him in the Greek language, ho kurios mu theos mu. Did you get that? Ho theos, the God, the Lord of me, ho kurios mu, the Lord of me, ho theos mu, the God of me. So there is evidence right there that Jesus accepted identification and accusation of being the Lord and the God. Not one of them. So next time you have the Jehovah's Witnesses coming, knocking on your door, and, they, and you want to pick a fight with them, if you're feeling especially sprite, and say, by the way, I know that you don't believe that Jesus is God, but uh, he's just a little God. He's a, as an angel. Uh, then you might want to say, well, in the book of Revelation... Jesus is identified as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning, the end, the first and the last, and taken back to Isaiah, and if you have my notes, you'll have the references on that. And Isaiah identifies God the Father as being definitely the first and the last. And so Jesus identifies him by saying, I am the first and the last. You can't have two people saying they're, I, they're the first and the last unless they are equal. And of course, if you read their commentary on this, they said, well, first and last doesn't mean that he is God, because after all, I mean, you've got you to get this. After all, Adam was the first and last man created. That doesn't make him God, because he was first and last. And, and you're just going like, why am I even wasting my time entertaining these people in my house? This is so painful. Why am I going through all this? Because it is vitally important we understand Jesus Christ is God. He declared himself to be God. And those who deny that don't go to the scripture to find out what scripture says. They go to the scripture to bend it to prove their own bias. And when you do that, you don't fear God. If you fear God, you said, let the scripture speak to me its truth. Not just let me go and try and prove my point by finding scriptures and twisting and manipulating them. So he declares himself to be God. Then the second thing Jesus declares in this revelation is his power. He says, I hold the keys of death and hell. Or, as this translation says, death and Hades. And this, this statement has much more significance in that culture than it does to us in our language. Because there was a deity in the Greek culture named Hades. And that Hades was the one who ruled over what is known as the realm of the dead. So to them, Hades was not hell, as we usually make the reference. To them, Hades was the god over the realm of the dead. But even in their culture, it eventually got shortened, since they knew that Hades was the god over the realm. It eventually got shortened to where just saying Hades referred not only to the god, but to all of the realm of the dead. So it kind of migrated, but they, they, it was never far from their mind that they were, uh, there's a reference to Hades the god. So whenever Jesus declares, I have the keys, 
That's another term that is quite interesting because they would have understood that in that culture as the one who holds the keys is always the most important trustworthy individual to be able to have that responsibility. The one who had the keys had the power to deny people access to the king or grant them access to the king. So the assumption is that Hades, the god, held the keys over the realm of the dead. And Jesus is making a challenging declaration here when he says, I hold the keys over death and Hades. He's the one that ultimately holds the keys over everything. That Greek culture would have been at least impressed with the fact that Jesus is declaring himself to be higher than all other gods. You might think your God holds the keys of death. I hold the keys over him. I am the supreme ruler. All of this stands in stark contrast to the rantings of the Roman emperor who threatened the life of anybody who followed Christ. And the emperor unquestionably had the power to permit life or cause death for all those in his empire. But Jesus is not impressed. I hold the keys of death and of health. If the emperor could take away life, Jesus declares, I give life. Anybody can take it away. Find me somebody who can give it. Some find me somebody who can create it. Making himself higher than Hades. Making himself higher than the emperor. His declaration of power and authority is very clear in this vision that John shared with the churches. Why should they want to know this? Because if these churches who are going through trouble and trial and tribulation, and how many of you are going through troubles and trials and tribulation, and you need a message from God, and the message is that if Jesus is in control, if he has authority, all authority over death, we shouldn't fear death. So why do we? How, when's the last time you here this morning have thought about death? I don't like to think about it that every day. When I think about it, I did not invite that. It just comes to me sometimes. I'm minding my own business, and I get to thinking about one day I'm going to die. I'd rather think of about a lot of other things than that. But then when I begin to think about dying, and then I get all kinds of emotional things going on. I never end up real happy after pondering, I'm going to die one of these days. Most of my life is gone. I have a few years left. I don't have as many years left as I did at one time. I've passed over the tipping point. It's called the point of no return. It's shorter to go through than it is to try to go back. I'm going to die. Then I start thinking, I wonder how I'm going to die. And that gets gruesome. I have all these weird thoughts about lingering on with some tragic disease where I keep trying to bribe and get an iron skillet and sneak up behind me. 
And then I hear these these other stories that uh, some of you here today, you you are witnesses of this, that your loved one just gone. And I think, how wonderful. How can I make some arrangements with God? Can I bribe him? What can I do? God, just make it easy. Whatever's going, just make it quick and easy. I don't want this long, drawn-out stuff. I don't know, maybe you're not worried about death. I try not to worry about death. But uh, have I succeeded? You weren't worried about it until I got you there. At least you've got a good takeaway from this sermon today on Father's Day. Go home and think about the little time you got left. (laughs) Why do we fear death? Why is it such an obsession with us? When we read that Jesus so powerfully declared in his revelation, he said, hey, hey, I hold the keys of death. I'm in control. I'm the one that can give life. If I'm serving Jesus, if he's my Lord and Savior, and he's in control of all of this, even if I die, I'm going to live again. Why should I worry? I think it's because I hate pain. I'm a little bit afraid if it's not going to hurt, I'm not worrying about it. But if it's going to be painful, I'm trying to find alternatives. But Jesus says it doesn't make any difference. As Jesus spoke to Mary and Martha, my brother's dead, but I'm the resurrection and the life. What difference does it make? He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Man, that's good news. I mean, the hopeless, they can worry about it, but we should not. I'm going to go home and work on that today. And then the next thing that Jesus reveals about himself is a declaration of his providence. When he says, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. See, he's standing there in the midst of the lampstands and in the midst of the, uh, the seven stars. And what he's declaring is Jesus is in the midst of his churches. Now, let's deal with the stars first. Here's uh, the seven stars. What are the seven stars? Well, aren't, aren't you thrilled when we get the interpretation and we don't have to work so hard for it? So Jesus very plainly said, the seven stars are seven angels. Great. That was easy. What are the angels? Finish out this interpretation for me. You got me halfway there. So here's three possibilities on the angels. Uh, the, the first possibility is that the angels are the pastors of the churches. That's probably one of the most popular concepts of the seven stars or the seven angels. And the seven angels are the seven pastors. An- another alternative is the seven stars are the readers of the church. They were a, had a prominent role to play in the church. So they would get up and read this. The letter was to them as well as to the congregation. And the third uh, option in it is that the seven angels are surprise angels. Because the implication for those who believe that 
is that there are angels in the heavenly that they've got duties to fulfill. And you read the book of Daniel, where Daniel was praying for an interpretation, and he couldn't get an interpretation right away. And when the interpretation finally came, Daniel said, well, what took you so long? Well, I was fighting a battle to get here. And so some believe that the angels are angels that were assigned by God to watch over the church. Uh, there's, there's, there, there is some indication in Scripture that angels are active in that. Now, here's my interpretation of it. I don't know why Jesus would be telling John, write a letter to the angels. They don't need a letter. So I think it makes more sense to understand that the angels were still symbolic of the pastors of the church. They would need the letter. The angels in the heavenly, where, where's their mailbox? Where are they going to get this? Do they come down and read our Bibles? Probably not. So as much as we are intrigued by the idea there might be angels watching over the church or angels watching over us or guardian angels or angels in the heavenlies fighting our battles for us and there is some, some uh, uh, credibility to some degree to some of that, but probably the angels are those who would really need the messages being written, probably the pastors of the church. And then the seven lampstands are the churches. And Jesus standing in the midst. Now that's the inspiring part. Jesus standing in the midst of his churches. Jesus is with the pastors. He's there because it's his business to be there. It's there because it's his church. And you notice that in the seven churches, you've already read the letters to the seven churches at some time in your Christian life. So all you have to do is just do some review right now. They weren't all in real good shape. Some of them were in fairly good shape and had a fairly good report, but I have somewhat against you. Remember that? Church of Philadelphia, had, he didn't have anything against them. You're doing all right. But the church of Laodicea, he didn't have a single good thing to say about the church of Laodicea. They were rotten to the core. He was standing in the midst of seven churches. Good and bad, he was standing in the midst of seven churches. Now we can think about churches in, in our uh, in our immediate area today. There's probably some churches that are fairly decent churches, and there's probably a few there that you think shouldn't even be permitted to call themselves a church. And I think in our own arrogance, we might say, Jesus doesn't even want anything to do with that. It's his church. And just because he's there doesn't mean that he is approving of what the church is doing any more than he approved what Laodicea is doing. Sometimes Jesus is there because he is the center of worship. Sometimes Jesus is there because he is the cheerleader and the inspiration for the church. But sometimes Jesus is there because he is the standard in the midst of the church to measure how far they are straying away from it. But he's not absent from his church. He wasn't absent from the midst of the Laodicean church, as wicked as they were. And he wasn't approving of what they were doing. But he said, it's my church, I'm not going anywhere. The church may drift away from me. The people may stray from my standards. But I am here to stay. He's in the midst of the church. No matter what condition the church is in. He stands there either as the object of the worship. Or he stands there as the judge. But it's his church. And then we move to the second chapter. Where we begin the personal messages to the seven churches. Only the first one, the church of Ephesus, will I be able 
to cover this morning. And these letters to all the churches follow a similar pattern. The letter is always addressed to the angel of the church. Once again, why? I do not believe that these are the real angels he's referring to because the real angels would not be addressed to the real angel up in the heavens over this, say this. He's addressing it probably to the messenger because the, the, the Greek word for angel is messenger. And that's the reason it very easily fits being the pastor of the church. Send it to the messenger of the church, the one who brings the message. So all letters are addressed to the angel of the church. Address it to the pastor. Imagine in this day and age, I as the pastor of the church get a letter from God. Dear pastor, here's what's wrong with your church. I have to get up and read this. I remind you, this is from God. Furthermore, all of the letters uh, state, are stated to be from Jesus and a part of his description is borrowed to highlight this is from the one who has the sh sharp two edges sort of coming from his mouth. Or this is from the one that has the, the, the hair white like wool, uh, wooly hair that is white like snow. This is from the one, if some aspect of this vi the vision is attached to Jesus, the one who in this vision, they describe something and then they say, this is his message. And then what Jesus specifically said to each church, I know, and it's usually a commendation, I know what you're doing good, good for you. But, and that's where he starts going downhill. I know what you're doing good, but here's the problem I have with you. And he addresses their errors. And then he always ends with an eschatological promise. Now those of you who have been with us through many of these series, and I've thrown this fancy word out there, I haven't asked you to learn to spell it yet, but I've asked you to remember what it means. What's the eschatology mean? What's eschatological mean? It's end times, having to do with the events that occur at the end times. So he ends up with an eschatological message at the end of each one of these. Behold, I come quickly. And the order of the churches, when he writes to Ephesus first, and he goes through the whole order of churches follows a geographical pattern if one would have landed on the coast of the, uh, from the Mediterranean Sea to land and started to visit all these churches, you would have visited those churches in a, in a, a semicircle going around and it would have logically followed exactly in the order in which these churches are addressed. So there is a lot of logical order in which they are, they are addressed and, and, and given a message from Jesus. Now, keep in mind, the entire book of Revelation was a letter to the churches. We don't stop with the message to the churches when we get through chapter 3 and enter in chapter 4. The entire book is a message to the churches, to all the churches. You understand what that implies? The entire book. But let's just concentrate on the first three chapters. And this was either hand carried by a messenger from church to church and it was read or if somebody painstakingly copied this and duplicated it and sent them to all the churches get this now listen to me essentially what this means is every church was reading each other's mail every church read the dirt on everybody else. As opposed to God 
sending Westside a message and saying, I've studied you, and here's your problem. He sends that same letter to all the churches in the Quad Cities and says, here's what I've got a problem with it, Westside. Well, Lord, I don't mind you sharing what our problem is, but why did you have to let the other churches know? Because we're very protective of our status. I know I attend the council meetings. We pastors, when we go to council, we do not go with a prepared statement of our church of all of our woes. Because you know one of the most common things that pastors say to one another, how you doing? Doing fine. How's your church? And our prepared statement is great. Doing great. How about yours? Yeah, we're great too. And I say, hey, for me, I, it's like I want to say, well, let me see your letter. I want to read your mail about this great church that you've got. Because only two out of seven here had a great church. Everybody else gets to see all the ugly stuff. How embarrassing. But you know, it's, it's good for all churches to see what the other churches are really really going through when you can't get past the facade of how great everything is you know why it's it's good to know what all the other churches are going through because it makes you feel like you're not weird pastors and churches tending to put their best foot forward pastors and churches putting ads in the newspaper trying to get people to come they always put their best advertisement out Come to our church and all the good things that are happening. We've got something for everybody, something for every age. And, and, and uh, this is a friendly church and this is a dynamic church. So this is a going church because they're not going to draw anybody. If they say, would you come to our church? We argue every Sunday. We have a big battle going on right now. It's just about to split us. Would you come and join us this Sunday? There's an undercurrent flowing here that will take everybody in the undertow if you don't know where you're going. Nobody wants to go to that church, but it's happening all over. But when God exposes what's going on in all the churches, we see that the enemy is not just picking on one church. I know things about a few churches around here that has been spoken to me in confidence that they look on the outside like they are growing and going and bustling and burning up the town and they just going great and I know the stuff that's going on inside that it would just it would blow your mind if you knew what was going on I'm not going to tell you but I'm telling you churches have problems because anytime you're trying to do something for God, there's an enemy there that's trying to mess it up. And he's not just messing with Westside. He's messing with a lot of other people. Now I'm going to air the dirty laundry of Westside for everybody that's here today. We don't have any problems. <laughs> that I'm aware of. <laughs> And I speak that from the depth of my heart. I am so glad that God has blessed this congregation with the kind of health that we have. Well, we as the board, we're not wrestling and grappling with one another and struggling and, and just about to turn and devour each other for the time being. 
And may God bless us with an extended period for the time being. The blessings are flowing and, and things are good and, my, and the people are good and we're happy and there's just not a, not, there's no junk going on. Now, I can't say that that has been the case in every church that I have pastored. Sometimes there's been a lot going on and many times the people didn't know it and sometimes there's a lot going on and people knew it before I did. But it's, it's a struggle because Satan hates the church. It's the body of Christ. It is the earthly institution that is supposed to be carrying out the mission of God. And if Satan can stop the church from doing the mission of God and cause them to devour themselves, obviously he wins the battle if he does that. So be prepared, people. Though we're in a, a, a very calm time in our church and have been for a while, nevertheless, Satan hates us. And doesn't want us to do anything and probably wants us to become complacent and do nothing. Let's just stay right here. It's safe. But we've got to get out of that safe zone. And do something for God that will probably irritate the powers of hell if we do it. So we just want to make a vow today. And it's one of those vows where uh, you, know, you raise your hand and say, I promise I will not devour my neighbor no matter what we go through. Amen. Praise the Lord. Okay, we're okay. We're going to stick together on this, right? No matter what storms we have to go through. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. He's among you. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know you cannot tolerate wicked people. You've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you've found them false. And you've persevered, and you've endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Wow, what a great church. Resumes pouring into that church. And then in the fourth verse, yet I hold this against you. Can you imagine a church being in such good shape that they doctrinally, they are pure? They're hard workers. They're doing good deeds. What's, what could possibly God have against a church like that? They, they persevere. The hardships coming against them, and they didn't give up. They stuck right in there. They held to it. They remained faithful. I've got something against you. And it comes down to something as simple as this. You've forsaken the love you had at first. And when I read that, if it doesn't grip your heart as a church or doesn't grip your heart as an individual, then I worry maybe something a little hardened, a little stony is happening down in here. Because when the problem is not, are you doing good things? The problem is, God says, I remember a time when you loved me more passionately than you love me today. And this is a time for every one of us to reflect back on our past life. Was there a time when you were on fire for God? And now you're just kind of serving God and doing the right things and going through the motion, but you don't have that passion that you once had. But that's okay because I've kind of settled down and you're not supposed to go around all starry-eyed and in love all the time, but God cares. He says, I remember when you loved me. Like you're not loving me today. I remember when you feared me. Like you're not fearing me today. I remember when you would refuse to compromise. Like you're compromising today. But God, 
I'm doing pretty good. And look at what I'm doing. And I'm hanging in. I haven't forsaken you like a lot of other people have. It had been so easy for me to walk away in bitterness, but I'm still here, God. I'm still hammering away at it. Lord, you got to give me some credit. I don't put up with people who are trying to destroy the truth by wrestling the Scriptures to their destruction. I'm very jealous of the truth of your Word, God. You've got to have something good to say about me. And God says, but you don't love me like you used to. And it's so severe that God says, if you don't change, I'm going to come and take away the candlestick. Now he's speaking not only to an individual, but he's speaking mainly to churches. In other words, if you don't get back on track and love me like you used to love me, I won't even qualify you to be a church. Churches that have been blown out of the water, been disintegrated, their cards been taken away by God because you're taking up space if you're not loving me. What's the greatest commandment? They come to the master. Lord, what is the greatest commandment? Tell us the greatest one. They had hundreds of commandments they had written, and they were hoping he would point to one of those that men had written. Oh, that was a good one there. That's better than all ten of mine. Which is the greatest? If we only had to one command that we had to obey. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And if there's any other that comes close to that, love your neighbor like you love yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. Because it didn't make any difference. They were doing good works. Or protecting the, the, the doctrine. For God's saying, if you don't do the first greatest commandment, all the rest of it is meaningless. You got to love me. I hold this against you. You've forsaken your first love. Consider how far you've fallen. And God commands, repent. And do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will remove your lampstand from its place as a church. There will be no more church as far as God is concerned if that congregation doesn't go back to loving God like he wants to be loved. He says, I have this in your favor. You have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Which the Nicolaitans were... A little cult that was running around infiltrating the local churches and bringing false doctrine. So it refers back to the first part about watching out for false prophets, watching out for false doctrines. And as he ends this up, he says, you've got to come back to your first love. He said, I do have to commend you. You're, you're taking a stand against the Nicolaitans. And that was significant because some of the churches had invited them in. And the Nicolaitans had begun to divide them over doctrinal issues. And over the purity of the truth. And it began to fester. And infect the church. And this Ephesus church had. They had set their seal against that kind of nonsense. You're not going to come in here. And you're not going to teach this garbage in this church. Mm -mm, not here. You can go somewhere else. You're not going to do it here. God says I like that. Don't you let that nonsense go on. In my church. But you got to love me. Standing strong against persecution, good. Standing strong against impure doctrine, good. 
You know, there was a time when the Ephesian church loved one another and loved God so, so dearly, so strongly. Read Paul's epistles, the epistles to the, the Galatians, the Ephesians, the Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. Read, read his epistles. And the, Ephesian, the epistle to the Ephesian is the only one where he doesn't have any, have any criticism of the church. It's a beautiful epistle. Everything the Ephesian church was doing right within 30 years. That church had come to the point where they were still doing a few things right. But God said, you know what the problem is? You don't love me like you used to. He didn't even say you don't love me. Don't get offended and say, well, I love God. God says you don't love me like you used to. What is it about God we can love him less today than we used to? That's not fair. That doesn't work in your marriage. Try that as a defense. One says to the other, you don't love me like you used to. Yeah, but I still love you. But not like you used to. What has changed? How come you don't love me like you used to? See, it doesn't, doesn't work. You've got to go back to what it used to be. Let's have that relationship we once had. Oh, pastor, there's been a lot of things happen in my life. I don't know if I'll ever be able to love God like I used to. Why? God's a God that forgives. He knows what you've been through. He saw it coming before you did. He just wants you to be humble before him and come back and say, God, I want to come back to where I used to be. I want to love you like I used to love you. And I can't come with the same kind of innocence that I came at one time. I got a lot of baggage. It didn't make any difference. God wants to love you. He wants to have that close, intimate relationship. He, can say, he says, I can deal with whatever's happened. That's not the problem. The problem is I want us to have that love like we used to have. And this is the alarming truth. Not only can a church cease to exist due to its failure to operate as a church that loves one another, but what's that do to us as individuals if we don't love God like we used to? As a church, you can't neglect evangelism because you're not loving God like you used to. I'll tell you what I was confronted with when I came to Westside. I was confronted with story after story after story after story. And how many times do you want me to say that? Have people coming up to me and say, here's what we used to do. Here's what I used to do. I used to drive the bus. I used to be here on Sunday morning. I used to work in that ministry. I used to do that. I, used to, I, I challenged those people. Why are you not doing it now? No. What is this used to? I mean, that's between you and God. But what is this used to? What drove you to do that at that point? If it was because you loved God and wanted to serve him, I, I wonder what is compelling you now. I don't think any of us until we hit the grave ought to be talking about what we used to do for God as though it was the highlight of our life. I think every one of us that are still drawing breath in our lungs ought to be thinking about what we're going to be doing for God that's going to be greater than anything else we've ever done. Because why? Because our love for God ought to still be growing. Drawing closer to Him every day. 
can't neglect evangelism. We can't fail to love our neighbor. We can't run our church like it's an exclusive club for members only. We've got to love everyone that comes in. We can't ignore visitors when they come and go home and say, Say, I saw some new people there. I wonder who they were. Let's call up Ambie. He knows who they are. Well, if you wanted to know, why didn't you go and meet them? Is that a church that loves? We can't judge everyone who has slightly different views on non-essential matters. That's not loving God. We're not a Baptist church. Baptists are Calvinists. We're Arminians. Some people are three-point Calvinists, four-point Calvinists, five-point Calvinists. Believe once saved, always saved. Some of them believe in the predestination of God. We're not Calvinists. We're Arminians. It's impossible to love one another. Those kind of barriers, right? No. Because you've got people who proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. You can love them in spite of these non-essential differences. I still have a few people from Calvinistic backgrounds try and pick a fight with me. To be able to love one another regardless of the little insignificant differences. In some churches you got the King James only people sitting on one side. Everybody else sitting on the other side. They'd be good people that just get the King James Version. We can't cease to have fellowship because you like different styles of Christian music than I like. It doesn't work. You've got to cross those boundaries. Loving God, loving each other, loving your neighbor, loving the sinner, loving the lost and hopeless. Forget the difference on non-essential matters. And the message to the Ephesian church is, something is keeping you from loving me like you used to. It's a message to our church. It's a message to every single person here. Something has drawn you away. Something is a little cold in your heart. God wants you to fall in love with him again today. Would you bow your heads?